Before I begin, I want to say that because accountability is something that's very important to me, I usually don't speak about anti-racism without a partner who is with me. You may have noticed I am white and I am also a part of every privileged demographic in our culture. So what that is to say is that everything that I have learned about race comes from a book, comes from other people's testimonies, comes from what I have seen happen to others as either a bystander, a, a witness, uh, or a perpetrator myself. So this is to say that I am not an expert on this. Rather, I am a daily, daily co-learner who just keeps trying, who makes regular mistakes, and then just tries to keep going from there after learning from them. And so what I'm going to do today is stick as close as possible to my own story, while at the same time speak into the conversations that I have already had tested by mentors and leaders of color who have also charged me with having those conversations. There's a chance you may know me already from my 60-second sermon ministry. I have three that I would like to show you today. You may also know me from my blog post that kind of went viral within PCUSA circles on the white supremacy that was on display at the recent 224th General Assembly. We might even be partners in the field. Uh, through my work and service as a mid-council leader, serving 90 Presbyterian churches in West and Central Illinois that make up the Presbytery of Great Rivers. My ministry has been spotlighted by the Presbyterian Outlook News Agency of the PCUSA three times, once for my amateur video ministry, once for my anti-racism work as a pastor of a small majority white church, and once recently for my work serving on the PCUSA Special Committee on Racism, Truth, and Reconciliation. Specifically today, I'm going to talk about me and white supremacy. God help me. I often find it helpful when starting these conversations to begin with our own stories of our racial identity. So here's how I can tell mine. The closest I am to my European roots is being fourth generation Italian, which means absolutely nothing to me other than the spelling of my name and the size of my nose. All I believe that I really have is that this is the boat that my great grandfather Silvino used to come over from mainland Italy in 1906 which would have been on the earlier side of a large immigration wave of about 3 million Italians, all trying to fit into this new racial hierarchy being established at the time of Jim Crow racial segregation. This is a hierarchy that affects all, but is rooted in anti-blackness, while also including and developing and building this, this model minority myth that our Asian and Asian American and Pacific Islander siblings also face as being pushed or uh, being pushed into this hierarchy as it was being developed. Europeans like Silvino would have wanted to situate their families, families like mine, as high into the new racial hierarchy as possible because that meant leaving much of his culture behind for the promises of whiteness. I know nothing today about what it means to be an Italian American, really. And 
And to mask the sins of joining this hierarchy, I wasn't explicitly taught anything about being racialized as white. I think it's important here to differentiate, though, a cultural identity that is willingly given away from one a cultural identity that is stolen through enslavement. Mine was not stolen. In fact, I was misled to believe that I didn't even have a race. As if whiteness were the default human being. White supremacy shows up through the major investment of resources that were poured into communities that my white family had access to through the generations, as well as the curriculum of my formal education from K to, yes, all the way through seminary, all reinforcing the notion that I had everything I needed within my white bubble and I wasn't missing a thing. I remember being a pastor debating the passage of the Belhar Declaration into the PCUSA Book of Confessions, which is today our strongest confession, naming racism as sin. And to my shame, I remember challenging Belhar before voting against it, asking, what does this add that the Confession of 1967 does not? C-67 is, by the way, all about reconciliation and isn't. Anti-racism, all about reconciliation. God help me. Um, a white friend and colleague was seeing that there was more to the conversation that was happening on the floor. And he uh, is someone I respected and still respect tremendously. He stood up and he explained that the piece we were missing was systemic racism, which led him to say the words, because of this, I am a racist. He, him, himself, he is a racist, saying this publicly, which not only did it really confuse me, but it brought cheers from across the presbytery floor, which confused me even more. Jeremy was the least racist person that I knew, and it struck me that there was something I was missing, because if he is, then I am. And if he isn't, then I still don't understand why he said that and what's going on and why people were cheering. Either way, I realized that I had some work to do that moment moving forward. So I committed to a season of listening, different books, more diverse scripture commentaries, learning and listening uh, from different social media accounts, intercultural and anti-racism conferences. And this became such a regular part of my spiritual discipline and my spiritual life, not only with my educational life, but I noticed that approximately 75% of my continuing education funds were going to anti-racism capacity building. And I've noticed that that has kept even today. And I still continue to keep up this practice. And that's been going on for maybe about seven years now, I think. It changed my ministry. Experimenting with different voices encouraged me to not only hear different voices, but it encouraged me to experiment with my own voice. So this is when my video ministry began. Seeking new perspectives as a regular practice meant asking different questions and different questions of the scripture that I was never asking before. When you're looking at how to, to film or embody a specific text, you're asking who's in the room, who's not in the room. At the table set before me in the presence of my enemies, are there seats? Who are the seats for? 
Why? I was developing a new theological imagination fueled by self-emptying some things in order to let new things fit in. I want to share with you one of my 60-second sermons from about four years ago. It's the parable of the religious person and the tax collector at prayer. In the video, uh, the red A represents, uh, it's a literary reference to the scarlet letter, which here is going to represent social stigma. So um, I do want to say that my videos rely on a lot of visual cues. So if you can hear but not see right now, Briefly, there will be two characters with the same voice and contrasting their approach to humility. And in the finale, one will be embraced and taken up in the arms of God, while the other will be waiting humorously and uh, expectantly. Let's take a look at that now. God, I pray to you every day. Yeah, so, God, I don't remember the last time I talked to you. I go to church all the time. So this is what a church looks like. I followed all of your rules. I followed none of your rules. I've given a lot of money. I've stolen a lot of money. Wear this to make others see that I'm a good believer. I, I, I got this so I could intimidate the people that I cheat. I like who I am. I don't like who I am anymore. Bring me to heaven so I can be there. Get me out of this hell. I pray for everyone else who hasn't accepted you. I pray that you would just accept me. The world needs you. I need you. So change everyone else. Change me. Lift me up into your grace now. Amen. As I look back on that video, I realize that these were both me. The performative public self that strove for excellence and social credit and the private self that was only just beginning to realize how far I had yet to go anywhere. And I noticed that the more I explored how my socialized and racialized self, so infantile and in need of grace and redemption and transformation and knowledge, the more I realized that was the side of myself that was being sanctified. The more I poured something of myself out, the more I realized that something holier was replacing it. And there's something I think of value in recognizing the need for white people to realize that there is a kind of liberation from whiteness at stake for us as well. And the next step for me then was to turn my attention, not just inward, but to the community around me. So I'd like to try a little exercise with you. I want you to check off on your fingers. Every time you notice that one of the things I'm going to mention is a dominant operative characteristic of your workplace. If you see it at play, 
if you see it affecting the culture of your workplace, go ahead and just, just check them off, okay, on your fingers. Number one, perfectionism. More focus on what is wrong than what is right. Two, sense of urgency. Results soon and results now. Three, defensiveness. Difficult to raise new challenging ideas and perspectives. If you see, see these, go ahead and give yourself another point. Quantity over quality. The only measures of success are expressed in numbers. Number five, worship of the written word. If it's not from a book as a script on the agenda or in the manual, there's no place for it. Recognize this. If you do, give yourself another point. There's only one right way. This is not just one way to do something, but one way to be. Number seven, paternalism. This is a top-down power orientation. Number eight, either-or thinking. Binaries of good, bad, right, wrong, with us or against us. If you see that or notice that, give yourself another point. Power hoarding where there's little, if any, shared power in the organization. Fear of open conflict. I'm going to say that one's maybe self-explanatory. I'm going to continue. If you're running out of fingers, feel free to use your toes. Individualism. More focus on personal rights than collective responsibility. Number 12, progress is bigger, more. Progress is adding staff, adding programs, adding projects. Objectivity, where there's no place for even healthy emotions and expressed emotions. Number 14, right to comfort. There's a strong resistance to anything uncomfortable. How many fingers or toes do you have up right now? Some of them, half of them, if you're like me, all of them, maybe? These 14 characteristics come from a 2001 article written by Kenneth Jones and Tima Akun called White Supremacy Culture. The last time I did this exercise, people thought I was describing the Presbyterian Church. And I might have well has been. White people like me have been taught that these are the only way to live and work in community, and it is so deep in our bones that we can't even recognize them. I'll confess that this presentation right now is being done off of the written word right now because I like to manuscript things to make sure that they're as perfect as possible and to make sure that I can stay as close to within the time limit as possible. So right there, we have worship of the written word, we have perfection, and we have uh, urgency of time. Now, I'm not going to say that that none of these are appropriate at any given time. The The issue comes from when these are, are, are understood to be the only way. And this is when it serves as a function of preserving power and limiting access. That's where we have an issue with these. Being guided by white supremacy culture and the characteristics of white supremacy culture is part of what I think I've heard Dean Jacqueline Lapsley here describe as a failure of imagination on the part of our legacy of white leadership, which had deadly consequences, uh, devastating for our communities even today, which must be confronted. I invite you to take a breath with me.
In 2016, I was appointed by the moderators of the 222nd uh, General Assembly to serve on the PCUSA Special Committee of Racism, Truth, and Reconciliation. There were about 20 of us, uh, 75% black, indigenous, Hispanic, Eastern Asian, Southern Asian, and white. Uh, About 5% were, were white, sorry. Right before the pandemic, uh, we went to visit Montgomery, Alabama, which is one of the front lines of the civil rights movement uh, to ground us in our work. There, I learned that in 1860, they had more human trafficking stores for enslaved people than they had churches and hotels. Now, I'm going to say that again. 1860 Montgomery, Alabama, had more human trafficking stores than they had churches and hotels. I didn't know that. We visited the Equal Justice Initiative Legacy Museum and the memorial and um, the lynching memorial there. And I learned that lynchings were not these isolated hate crimes of kidnapping someone and privately hanging them in the woods. These were public and publicized carnival-like activities on town squares, courthouse lawns, and church grounds where people posed for photographs without hoods on, where they tortured and mutilated black people, most of them leading and powerful members of the community. I didn't know that. I remember standing next to the marker of Hardy Gill, who was lynched in South Carolina in 1894, and I I reached out and I put my hand on that stone. And then, in the same movement, I put my hand on the shoulder of the person next to me, who was the living ancestor of Hardy Gill. Her very existence, an act of defiance against the efforts to snuff out black people. After lynchings evolved by moving inside courthouses in the form of capital punishment, Lynchings then changed to sundown towns. This is where communities had unofficial uh, curfews against people who were black, Hispanic, or Jewish, with the implied and sometimes uh, more, less than implied, sometimes explicit threat of violence that if uh, what will happen to them if they are caught in their towns after sunset. So, when I do a majority you know, of my conscious raising work around racism in my majority white context, a question I hear a lot is, there, or a statement rather, is there's no real racism here because there are no people of color here. Now, I keep asking back, well, why not? Why are there not people of color on this side of the tracks that we have chosen? Great Rivers Presbytery in central and western Illinois, where I serve, is a predominantly white power center, but it is so because the Presbyterians decided to build not just the church, but the towns exactly for whom they decided to build them. My region was home to six racial terror lynchings and about a dozen confirmed or probable sundown towns, according to the Equal Justice Initiative and also research by historian James Lowen. I mark them here on a map of my presbytery, the sundown towns in blue and the lynchings in red. The lynchings in red are the murder sites of Scott Burton, 
and William Donegan, Holly Willis, F.W. Stewart, Sam Bush, and Andrew Richards. These murders were intended to shape the racial demographics of my entire region for generations. Two of our cities within the bounds of my presbytery have been listed by some metrics as among the most segregated cities in America. We cannot say there is no racism in majority white spaces while history lives on. We cannot say that history is in the past, not when it is still affecting the present and with no plans to change the future. I have since tried to push my presbytery to consider how white supremacy has shaped our churches from our choice of street address to our room decor. From whom our ministry serves to whom serves in our ministry. Consider your work or home community. What's the racial diversity of the people you live in look like? Why? What do the conditions look like where the majority of people of color live? How were those conditions created? How was your community shaped by racial terror lynchings, sundown towns, white flight, gentrification, redlining, segregation? What would an equity audit of sorts reveal of your community and how you are now to this day impacted by it? I invite you to take a breath with me. I want to show you another video. This one is about the kind of church we want to build now. This is starring members of my presbytery and also members of the PCUSA Special Committee on Racism, Truth, and Reconciliation. And I want you to notice both the arrogance of my character, thinking that I can do this work and build this church alone, and also, I just want you to know that I did not give any acting instructions to any of the others. I simply told everyone to respond as naturally as they feel that they would in that moment. Now, for those who can hear but not see, this imagery is of me grabbing cards from people only to struggle at building a card house that represents the church, only to switch orientations and hand out cards overlaid by images of building the church in other ways centered in justice, repair, and partnership. Let's go ahead and play that video now. You ready? I'm going to build God's house. Just need the right stuff. Joyce, g give me your card so I can build God's house. Hey, can I help? Hey, Bill, give me your card so I can build God's house. Mara, give me your card. Okay, folks, let's do this. Yeah. Ah. Ah. I, I got this. Really? Ah. That's the only way we can do it. That's the only way I know how to do it.
What do you say we build God's house together? I like that. Let's build God's house together. Angela, let's build God's house together. Valerie, let's build God's house together. Let's do it. Let's build God's house together. Let's do it. Let's build God's house together. Let's build God's house together. Let's build God's house together. Friends, the status quo is not working. Many of us, especially this time during this pandemic, want to return to normal, but normal was not working for us. We need new norms. We need new partners. We need to transform ourselves and our communities. We need to tear down and build up. The special committee on which I serve is hard at work on anti-racist recommendations with structural implications on every level of the church. We are going to talk about reparations and reparation. We are going to talk about white supremacy and white privilege. We're going to talk about structural implications. And in a 93% PCUSA white denomination, white people are going to need to step up and carry some work. And yes, we will need help doing that. And we have each other. Because it's all hands on deck and has been to dismantle structural racism. I have one last video to show you. This is the moment in scripture when Jesus tells Peter to take up the cross and follow him. Peter doesn't think he can do it. What's at stake if he doesn't? What's at stake if we don't? What's at stake if we do not take up the call to repair what needs to be repaired and address what needs to be addressed? I want you to watch this video now through the lens of the sacrifices we will need to make to be an anti-racist church. For those who uh, can hear but not see, in the video I'm going to trip over a cross and I'm going to try and fail to pick it up numerous times because I am unwilling to let go of the burdens that are in my arms, visual representations of my comfort, my financial security, and my safety.
Friends, in this video still today, I am still on the floor. I am still cradling all those things that I'm not sure I can let go of, but I have to find a way to do so, and I still have so far to go. And it is daunting, but to draw on the wisdom of Frozen 2, to break it down to the next step, the next choice, just do the next right thing. For me, it's recognizing that because white supremacy's hold on me is still strong and has been strong my whole life, that I can say and understand that yes, I too am a racist. While I have this increasing understanding now that now I can move beyond that. And there is an ongoing conversation about the effectiveness of that particular framing, but I can say that I understand what that, what that framing is now. And I understand too, not only where it situates me, but it gives me direction on where I can go next. Because I can choose to be anti-racist. I can choose to make that a core part of my still emerging sense of racial identity, especially now in this time of rising white nationalism that is choosing intentionally white supremacy. And we need to show each other that there is another way. Using my voice, my platforms, my privilege to tear down racism and to build a beloved community with you even if it means tearing myself down in that process is where I need to be right now. And I need you to be there with me so we can do this together. I want to thank the moderators of the 222nd PCUSA General Assembly for the opportunity to serve on the Special Committee on Racism, Truth, and Reconciliation, and for its members for holding me accountable for my words and actions. And also for Great Rivers Presbytery for taking a risk on me as your Presbytery leader and following my leadership. And especially I want to thank the Princeton Theological Seminary uh, Alumni Association Executive Council for honoring my service to the Church of Jesus Christ. Friends, let's build God's house together. Thank you.